Well, if you're new to City Church, we have been in a series of sermons from the Old Testament book of Habakkuk, one of the minor prophets, minor not because he's not important, but because the book is very uh, short. We took a break last week, as I said, to say goodbye to, to Sean Little. So I feel like what I need to do today is just take a moment here at the beginning and sort of do a quick reset for everyone on the book of Habakkuk. While I do that, you can be turning to the book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament to chapter 2. Chapter 2, we're going to be there one more week. So we've been in chapter 2 now for three weeks. It's important though. It's a critical chapter. That's why we're spending so much time there. Here's the issue at hand in the book of Habakkuk. How do you respond when God doesn't do what seems completely obvious to you and everyone else you know that he ought to do? When he doesn't do what you think he should do. When it seems obvious what he should do and, you, and he doesn't do it. How do you respond to him? How does that affect your faith? When you lose the girl that you were sure was the one for you that you could have spent the rest of your life with, what do you do? How do you handle that? When a scam artist cheats your dear grandmother out of her life savings, the woman who first told you about Christ and modeled Christ's love for you all of your life, how does that affect your faith? When your son dies in the prime of his life, hit by a drunk driver, How does that affect your faith? None of those things make any sense at all, do they? Wouldn't it be reasonable to think that God would intervene in some way and keep those kinds of things from happening? And when he doesn't, what then? How should that affect our faith? How does that affect your faith? You know, listen, times change and styles change and technology changes, but the issues that people deal with principally remain the same. Which is why a book like Habakkuk that's so old can be so relevant to us today. Habakkuk is wrestling with those very same issues, those very same questions. God has told Habakkuk something that has blown his categories. He's told him that he's going to use the most brutal, bloodthirsty, ruthless people that the world had ever known at that point in time, the Babylonians. He's going to use them to deal with the moral and spiritual decay in his people by letting them conquer them and carry them off into captivity. And this makes Habakkuk crazy on at least two levels. One level is these people are God's chosen people. These are the people through whom God has promised to rescue the world. If they're carried off into captivity, what becomes of God's plan? What becomes of God's people to whom he's made these promises? And second, how in the name of all that is good and holy, this is what Habakkuk is asking. How is the name, how in the name of all that is good and holy, could God use evil Babylonians to do his bidding? See, this is, this is completely outside of Habakkuk's understanding of God. And you get that, right? Like I said a moment ago, sometimes God's way of dealing with things is just inconceivable to us at times, at least, at least to our minds, at least to our sense of reason. That's where Habakkuk is in this book. Now, God also explains to Habakkuk in chapter 2, we saw this a few weeks ago, that even though he's going to use the Babylonians, they're not going to escape his judgment. In fact, the seeds of of, of Babylon's ultimate destruction are already present in their rise to power. Chapter 2 is largely a chilling description of how those seeds will indeed be their destruction. But in the midst of this chilling description of Babylon's ultimate demise, there are these two verses that 
Like they just seem to come out of nowhere when you read them. It's like, it's like they feel like they've just been randomly inserted in the text. Now let me show you. It's chapter 2. Um, I, you know, we've read chapter 2 in previous weeks. I don't have time this morning to read the whole passage, but I'll read just a little bit of the context for you so that you can see how random these two verses that you're going to see in just a moment are. The first one occurs in uh, chapter 2, verse 12. You can turn there. Chapter 2, verse 12. And you'll see the context here. God is speaking about Babylon. And he says about Babylon, Woe to him. He's talking about Babylon. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? And then here comes what seems random. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's not quite as apparent there because I just read a short period, a short section. But if you read all of chapter 2 and the context, that would just seem like it was stuck in there. All of this chilling description of Babylon's demise. And then boom. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Okay, let me show you the second one. Look at verse 19. Chapter 2, verse 19. God is describing Babylon's idolatry. And here it goes. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life or to lifeless stone. Wake up. Can it give guidance? It's covered with gold and silver. There's no breath in it. And here we go. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Happens again. Why? Why do these, why these two what appear to be Random verses. Why are they here? Well, let me explain it to you in in this way. I want you to imagine for the moment that sometime this afternoon you're standing outside, backyard. Maybe you're at a park. I don't know, wherever. And it's a beautiful day out, postcard perfect. But suddenly, out of nowhere, a storm starts to brew. The winds pick up. The temperature changes. It starts to get cool suddenly. The air starts to smell thick and damp, and the sky is turning, and it turns, it turns dark gray, ominous, looks frightening. But there's a, there's, there's a small crack in the cloud layer where the sun streams through as fast as water through a cracked dam. You know that the storm is coming, right? Because the wind has already been unleashed. But you know that there will be sunshine and warmth on the other side of the storm because of that Small crack in the cloud layer where you see the sun. Let me ask you something. What is that sunshine that's coming through the crack in that cloud? What what is that sunshine? It's literally a ray of hope in the midst of the storm. And this is what these two verses represent to Habakkuk. God has told him that there's this terrible storm coming and the form of Babylon, and and it's going to be destructive. But it's like these two verses are saying to to Habakkuk that there's sunshine and warmth on the other side. This isn't going to be the end. There's sunshine and there's warmth on the other side. Habakkuk needed hope. And that's what these verses represent. They represent hope for Habakkuk. Let me ask you something. Anyone here today, anyone here today in need of hope? Anyone here? Anyone here need a Maybe a ray of sunshine in the midst of a brewing storm. Yeah. And I subtitled this series, 
trusting God in turbulent times. I wonder if anyone here today feels like we live in turbulent times. Feel that? Let's just talk about this past week. On Monday of this past week, a young Google employee was fired from his job as a result of writing an internal document that said, and this is what he said, and I quote, that Google has created a politically correct monoculture that shames its dissenters into silence. And not only does it shame them into silence, but it actually rids the company of them, apparently. I wonder if that bothers you. I wonder if it bothers you that we're so polarized as a nation today that it's impossible to disagree with one another without making the other person the enemy, an enemy, your enemy. Does that bother you? Didn't always, hasn't always been that way. On Tuesday of this week, the president responded to a question about North Korea's nuclear threat toward Guam. And he said this, North Korea best not make any more threats to the United States. They will be met with fire, fury, and frankly, power, the likes of which this world has never seen before. Today, people in Guam, today, are being instructed on how to survive a nuclear attack. World seem turbulent to you? Today, in Charlottesville, Virginia... Charlottesville is under a state of emergency as a result of white supremacists who in a disgusting display of bigotry and hatred carried torches, wore Nazi memorabilia, chanted anti-black, anti-LGBT, anti-Jewish, anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant slogans in protest of the removal of the statue of the Civil War General Robert E. Lee. All of this in just a week in America. Do things seem turbulent to anyone here? And then maybe besides all of the national and world turbulence, maybe you're in some personal, personal turbulence of some kind. Maybe, maybe it has to do with your health. Maybe it has to do with your marriage, your family. I don't know, your finances, your education. I don't know. But there's a storm brewing in your life. Or maybe you're right in the middle of a storm. Could you use a ray of hope today? These two verses can be as much of a ray of hope to you today as they were to Habakkuk almost 3,000 years ago. How, you ask? I'm glad you asked. Let's take a look at these and let's see how they can be a source of hope for you today. Let's start with the last one. I want to start with the one that occurs in verse 20 of chapter 2. I'm going to put it back up on the screen for you here so that you can see it. Again, it says that the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Now, here's what this is saying. I don't want you to make a note of this somewhere. I don't care if you write it down, put it in something digital. But I want you to make a note of this. No matter how dark the storm, God is in control. That's what this verse is saying. No matter how dark the storm, no matter how great the turbulence, God is in control. Now, the theological word for this is that God is sovereign. But what does that mean? What does it mean that God is sovereign? Well, I'm going to put this up on the screen for you so that you can see. It means that there is absolutely nothing that happens in the universe that is outside of God's influence and authority. Nothing happens in the universe. And that includes North Korea, Charlottesville, 
firing of an employee from Google, whatever. There's nothing that happens in the universe that is outside of God's influence and authority. In other words, no matter how turbulent the world we live in is, none of it is too much, none of it's too big for God, and none of it has caught him by surprise. He's in control, he's in charge, and he will accomplish his, pers- his purposes through whatever it is that happens. But the problem is, <laughs> when you're right in the middle of it, it doesn't always seem that way, does it? You think people today in Guam, do you think they feel like God's in control? Is there reading about how to survive a nuclear attack? doesn't always feel like that when you're in the middle of it, does it? I think Habakkuk must have felt that. In the moment, when he hears of this coming storm, he surely thought, he, he had to have thought in and of himself in the moment that all hope for God's people was lost. He had to have thought that. It's what any of us would have thought. But it wasn't. Here's the thing. It wasn't lost. In fact, yes, Babylon carried Israel into captivity. But while they were in captivity, God did some crazy, miraculous things that got not only Israel's attention and re-energized their faith, but got the whole world's attention. One of which was, he took the king of Babylon at the time, And he brought him to faith. Brought him literally to his knees to the point that instead of worshiping false idols, he began to worship the God of Israel. It's pretty remarkable. Got the whole world's attention. So God's sovereignty on a national level means that nothing happens outside of God's control. But here's the thing. I want to get more personal with the implications of God's sovereignty. I want to get very personal with you, your life. What are the implications of God's sovereignty for you? Let's, let's bring it down from the world and national level and let's make it very personal. God's sovereignty, and I'm going to put this up on the screen for you as well. God's sovereignty also means that there isn't anything that will enter your life that God does not either decree or allow and nothing will ever enter your life that he cannot work out for your good. Let me read this again. God's sovereignty also means that there isn't anything that will enter your life that God does not either decree or allow. If it's happened to you, God has allowed it or God has decreed it. And nothing will ever enter your life. Nothing means nothing. Nothing will ever enter your life that he cannot work out for your good. Some of you find yourself in very turbulent times personally. Maybe it's a result of something you've brought on yourself. And you wonder, you know, when you, when you find yourself in a mess of your own making, you wonder sometimes, have I ruined my life? Whatever God had planned for my life, has it all been ruined now? Has it all been, has it all been messed up? Have I, have, I, have I ruined everything? Listen to me. No matter how dark the storm, God is in control. God is sovereign. No matter how dark the storm, God is in control. Would you say that with me? You know, I want you to repeat this with me. And here's why I want you to repeat it with me. There are all sorts of voices in your ear all the time. When you, when you do something, you screw something up, you make a big mistake. There are all sorts of voices that are in your ear. Oh, you've done it now. Oh, you've screwed up your life. Oh, you know, God can never use you anymore. And then there are the voices in your head that say that, right? Voices outside, voices in your head. One of the things we have to learn to do is to talk to ourselves to silence those voices. 
You got to talk to you. You got to talk truth to yourself. So I want you to repeat this with me again, that no matter how dark the storm, God is in control. Say it with me. No matter how dark the storm, God is in control. What storm are you in today? God's in control. God's in control. And you haven't ruined your life. Back in the book of Genesis, there's this guy, his name is Jacob. Jacob came from a very important family. He was one of Abraham's descendants. And some of you who know your Bibles will know that that meant that Jacob was to carry the Messianic seed. In other words, the Messiah was to be born one day through Jacob's line of descendants. You know, his kids and their kids and their kids. And one day, Jesus would be one of those. God's plan to rescue the world would come through Jacob's line of descendants. That's a pretty big thing. Would you agree? Pretty big responsibility. Pretty big stuff. But I'm going to tell you something. If you were picking a person for that kind of responsibility, there is no way on earth you would have chosen Jacob. Jacob did everything a person could possibly do to screw up his life. Lied to his father, cheated his older brother out of his birthright. His brother got so angry that Jacob had to run away and leave his family and leave his land. Never saw his mother again, never got to see his father again. Lost his inheritance, a huge mess he makes out of his life. However, in the midst of this huge mess that he made, <laughs> this is wild, I don't, in the, in the midst of this huge mess that he made, if he hadn't run away, he would have never met the woman that he married through whom Jesus ultimately came. Never would have, never would have married her, never would have met her, never would have happened if he hadn't had to run away. Now, let me ask you something. Did Jacob make very bad decisions? Absolutely. Did Jacob experience pain as a result of the bad decisions? Sure, yes, absolutely. Was Jacob responsible for his bad decisions? Absolutely. Did anything Jacob do foil God's plan for Jacob's life? No. Absolutely not. Why? Because the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. In other words, God is sovereign. That's why. Nothing Jacob did could have foiled God's plan for his life. You can make a mess out of your life. You surely can. Your decisions matter. They do. You're responsible for them. Maybe, maybe you're here today and you're pregnant and you aren't married. Maybe you had an abortion. Maybe you cheated on your spouse. Maybe you've got an addiction. Maybe, maybe you struggle with a drug addiction. Maybe you gambled everything that you had away. Maybe you spent time in jail. God forbid, maybe you're a Cubs fan. <laughs> Will there be consequences for those things? Absolutely. That's, how, that's just how life works. Will you experience pain? Sure. But will any of those things ruin God's plan for your life? Absolutely not. I don't think you could say that God's plan for Jacob's life was ruined. He carried the messianic seed and passed it on down to his son. Think of it this way. Could God ever say, could God ever find himself in a situation where he would say, well, you know, I wanted this for Jeff's life, but Jeff did this. Now what do I do? Could God ever be in that situation? Of course not. 
A straight line is not the only way to get to point B from point A. Squiggly lines can get the job done too. You might go through some twists and turns, but God will overrule. This is what God's sovereignty means, that he will overrule all evil and all bad decisions to accomplish exactly what he wants to accomplish in your life. And listen, if you can trust God's sovereignty, if you can get a hold of that, it will bring you a peace that is beyond understanding. We have this saying that, you know, sometimes we, we use around here, and it goes like this, that good psychology is good theology made personal. Good psychology is good theology made personal. And here's a perfect example of this. For those who believe in and remind themselves over and over of God's sovereignty in the midst of their turmoil, much of their anxiety gives way to peace. Because no matter what's going on, no matter what the turmoil, no matter how big the storm, the Lord is in his holy temple. And so, let all the voices outside, let all the voices inside your head, all of those voices that tell you that there is no hope, God says the Lord is in his holy temple and let all the earth shut up before him. That's the ray of hope. For Habakkuk here. Yes. Habakkuk. The people of Israel have made some terrible mistakes. They've rebelled against me. They're going to experience consequences. They're going away to Babylon. But I'm still going to use them. I'm still going to be faithful to my promises to them. The Messiah is still going to come through them. I am going to rescue the world through the Jewish people. Because I am sovereign. And that hope is for you today too. Whatever it is that you've done, whatever the mess is that you've made, know this, God is sovereign. Nothing that you've done can mess up his plan for your life. You're at point A. He's going to get you to point B, I promise you. You may go left, you may go right, you may go up, you may go down. But you're going to get there because God is sovereign. Okay, I want to look at the other ray of hope in the midst of this storm. Habakkuk needs hope. I want to look at verse 14. It's the first one that we looked at. We'll end with this one. We'll close with this one. Again, chapter 2, verse 14. We read it just a moment ago. I'll put it back up on the screen. For the earth, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now again, it certainly wouldn't have seemed to Habakkuk as he stands there hearing this news about this terrible coming storm of the Babylonians. Sure wouldn't have seemed to him that there would be a day that the world would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. Can't imagine that he would have thought that. And yet, this is a promise from a sovereign God. So it must be true that the world will not end, that evil will not be ultimately victorious, that God's plan will be fulfilled, and that one day his goodness and his beauty will fill the earth. But what about now? (laughs) What about the meantime? You know, that's going to happen, God says, in the end. But what about in the meantime? What hope is there in this verse for us today? Well, here it is. And I really do hope that you will make a note of this somewhere. We, here's the hope. We are the hope of the world. Yeah. We are city church, the local church. Let me, let me explain why I say that. A couple of weeks ago, 
we were in chapter 2 and we saw that God described, he described the core of the Babylonian culture as a culture of pride. He said that's what's at the, that's what's at the heart of this culture is pride. Verse 4 in chapter 2, he said, see, the enemy is puffed up. It means prideful. His desires are not upright. What drove them as a culture was pride. They wanted power. They wanted wealth. They wanted to be feared. They wanted to be revered. In other words, they wanted glory. And so chapter 2 tells us that they became greedy and violent and bloodthirsty and racist and misogynistic. They used people to get what they wanted. All of this so that they could have glory. The world would see them and glorify them. And because of this, God says to the Babylonians, again, we saw this a few weeks ago in verse 16, he says, you will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it's your turn. Drink and let your nakedness be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you and disgrace will cover your, and then like that last word glory, put, you know, do this around it. It will cover your glory. Disgrace will cover your wealth. Disgrace will cover your power. Disgrace will cover your nation. You think you're great. You want glory. You're going to be covered with shame as a nation. Now, here's the danger for you, for me, when we read a verse like that. And when we hear about the Babylonians, the danger is that you hear about the Babylonians and you think to yourself, those bad Babylonians. But you fail to see yourself in the description. Anyone here prideful? Anyone here greedy? Anyone here ever use sex or money or power for your own selfish purposes? Anyone here violent? Anyone here racist? Or misogynistic? Anybody here use people to get what you want? Sure, all of us have some or maybe all of those traits. And God says that just as the Babylonians deserve shame for that, so do you and so do I. What's true of the Babylonians is just as true of us. Like the Babylonians, you deserve to drink of the cup of God's wrath. But even as I say these things, even as I read that, ver- that last verse, 16, verse 16, just a moment ago, those of you who go to City Church on a regular basis, bells should start ringing in, in some of your heads right now. And here's why. Remember the verse said that, you know, your nakedness will be exposed. Can you think of anyone, those of you who go to city church on a regular basis, can you think of any, anyone whose nakedness was shamefully exposed in a travesty, a travesty of justice for all the world to see? Anyone here, can you think of anyone who took on shame so that we could be covered with glory? You think of anyone like that? Can you think of anyone who drank the cup of God's wrath so that we would never have to? Can you think of anybody like that? 
Those of you who are regulars here, if you're not thinking of the Lord Jesus Christ, you haven't been listening in all of the other weeks that you've been present. Because on the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ died for our sins, took the punishment that we deserved, endured the shame and the scorn that we deserved, so that those who believe in him can be covered with his glory. Not shame, but glory. And collectively, that group of people who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and who are covered with his glory through his death and sacrifice are known as the church. And what that means is that we don't have to keep striving for glory the way the Babylonians did and the way that the rest of the world does. We don't have to use people to get glory. We're covered with Christ's glory. We don't have to misuse sex and money and power to get glory. We're covered with Christ's glory. And so out there, white supremacists shout bigoted comments, while in here, there is only one race, the human race. And so blacks and whites and Asians and Hispanics can live in peace with one another because our glory is in Christ. It's not in money. It's not in sex. It's not in power. It's not in the color of our skin. And so out there, people, people can't, they can't disagree with each other without hating each other. But in here, there are many of us who disagree on many things. And yet we still love each other because our glory isn't in being right. Our glory is in Christ. And out there, peace is only a bumper sticker. But in here, in the local church, people of different political backgrounds and socioeconomic backgrounds and nationalities and levels of education and skin color can live in peace and unity with one another. Because our glory is in Christ, not in sex, not in money, not in power, not in race. It's in the glory of Jesus Christ that we've already been covered with. And when the local church operates like that, And let's be honest, it doesn't always. But when it does, it is the hope of the world. Which means that we, collectively and individually, those who believe in Christ, can be part of the solution, not the problem. When someone disagrees with us on on social media, we can be humble enough to be kind and gracious to them. We don't have to have everyone agree with us. Because we're covered in Christ's glory. When white supremacists shout racist and bigoted things, we can stand against them courageously and yet pray for them at the same time. And in all of this, we're the ray of hope in the midst of the storm that the world is in, proclaiming the glory of God and reminding people that we're but just a small appetizer of what the world will be like in that day in the future when the whole earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. We, the local church, are the hope of the world. Because if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've been covered with his glory. You don't have to reach for something anymore. You don't have to hide your shame. You're covered with the glory of God. I hope that you will go out into the world this week with that understanding of your role in the world. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are the hope of the world. Live with that sense of hope this week. Live with that honor, with that dignity. Be the hope of the world. Be the hope of the world in your company. Be the hope of the world at your workplace. Be the hope of the world in your school. Be the hope of the world on social media. I'm going to tell you something. 
It troubles me, I, I'm, honestly. Uh, sometimes it'll be, you know, you'll be out on social media and you'll be, see somebody who says that they're a Christian and what they've written, what they've said to someone else is absolutely horrible. It's hateful. It's mean-spirited. I, I, I mean what I'm going to say here is uh, absolutely sincerely. If I'm out on social media and I see any of you out there saying something like that, I promise you, I will confront you on it. I'll challenge you on it. I promise you I will do so. And if you think I won't, well, don't try me. But still, I promise you, I'll confront you on it. That's not the hope of the world. Hatefulness isn't the hope of the world. Love, you, glory of Christ, the love of Christ. That's the hope of the world. Showing it to everyone. Live with that sense of hope. Live with that honor and that dignity that you've been given. Be the hope of the world and point people to the day that the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Would you bow with me for prayer? Very hard for us, Lord, to look at our own uh, issues and our own frailties and think that in any way that we could be the hope of the world. That in any way we could be your spokesperson. And yet, Lord, that's the sort of the cosmic joke that the local church is the hope of the world because you have covered us with your glory. Lord, I pray that we would be the hope of the world, that as a church, that individually, that we would be the hope of the world. The world needs hope so desperately. Lord, I pray also that there are people, for the people here today who are in some sort of turmoil, some sort of turbulence in their life, some sort of storm. Lord, would you give them peace today in a way that I cannot do it through the power of your spirit. Just speak to them and give them a sense of peace today that comes from a belief in your sovereignty. That there's nothing that's happening nationally or personally that is out of your control and that you can't work together for good in some way. Reassure those who are worried that somehow they've screwed up their life. Lord, would you reassure them that there's nothing that they can do to keep your plan for their life from happening. And Lord, for those who are here today that maybe this is Maybe they've never really heard about what Christ did for them on the cross. Maybe they've, never, maybe they've never contemplated that Christ died on the cross for their sins because it was the only way that their sins could be dealt with. Would you, through the power of your spirit, would you speak to them today too? Would you let them know that you love them, that you pursue them, that you, you care deeply, that, that you want a relationship with them? And would you bring them to a point in, of belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. We thank you so much for the truth of this passage of scripture that speaks hope to us over 3,000 years later. And it is in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we pray today. Amen.